Before we start, I want to thank our sponsor, Quiet Light Brokerage. Quiet Light's team of advisors helps entrepreneurs like you buy and sell online businesses for six, seven, or eight figures. They closed over $75 million of deals last year alone, and they've closed hundreds of millions of dollars since they started in 2007. Want to know how much your business is worth? Visit quietlightbrokerage.com slash exit strategy to find out. The site will teach you how to determine what impacts your valuation and how to optimize your valuation through ad backs and accounting methods. Whether you're aiming for an exit or want to run your business for years to come, QuietLight can help you. Ready to learn more? Visit quietlightbrokerage.com slash exit strategy to get started. All right, on to today's episode. All right, we're going to get started with this episode of the Exit Strategy Podcast. We're here with Jesse Horowitz. Jesse is a published author. He wrote a book called Selling Naked, which is about launching direct-to-consumer businesses. Um, he co-founded Hubble, which is Harry's for disposable daily contacts. And right now he's working on running a bunch of digital ads for Andrew Yang. Jesse, did I get all of that right? Yeah. Great to be talking with you today, Moise. Yeah. Oh, uh, likewise. You know, you and I met, I want to say like three or four years ago, you were yeah, actually right. at Harvard Law School for like a day and a half, as I recall. And one of my friends yeah. knew you. And so she's like, oh, you guys should get in touch because you're both starting direct-to-consumer businesses. That's right. I was class of 2010 and sort of doing job apps and um, law school applications at the same time. And the law school applications went better than the job apps. Uh, so there <laughs> I found myself at Harvard Law. I imagine there are there's going to be a bunch of people the next year or two, unfortunately, who will uh, share that kind of experience. Sure. Did you make it past the first year or were you were there for? No. So I, so I want to work investment management. I kept just recruiting. I met a friend who had been at Bridgewater Associates and interned at Bridgewater and just asked them if I could stay on full time. Um, so didn't go back for too well. Law school was totally fine. It was just I didn't want to be a lawyer. And so it was like time yeah. and money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it makes a ton of sense. Okay, fast forward HLS, Bridgewater. Tell me how you get into like the contacts industry. Do you wear daily sure. disposable contacts? Yeah. Like, how did this sort of develop? One of my friends from Bridgewater ended up at BCG, then Harry's. I was working on the investment team for Columbia's endowment at that point. It was an interesting job and also gave me a fair amount of time to kick the tires on other ideas. He was living, his name's Ben. Uh, ben was living across the street from me. You know, was working on shave subscriptions. So started poking around contact lens subscriptions like late 2015 and somewhere pretty early on. I just offered to help out and see if we could roll up our sleeves together. Done that with a few other friends projects and, um, you know, none of the other ones kind of gained traction the same way. So, um, you know, it was a good way to, in a low risk way, kind of explore different ideas. How did Hubble like gain traction? So, you know, you're, if you're kicking around the idea, how are you kicking around? Are you creating landing pages and running ads? Are you at, like doing surveys? What are you doing there? Yeah, we did some customer surveys, uh, you know, some potential customer surveys. We did a lot of work on sort of the manufacturer landscape um, products, obviously, kind of, you know, central in a business like this. We did some landing page tests and Harry's had done a pre-launch campaign that we uh, that they had hosted to GitHub. So we copied that and sort of repurposed that. But a lot of it was just sort of the moment in time. I mean, it was like April, May 2016, um, right before the Dollar Shave sale, right after. Um, so Harry's had run a, pre a pre-launch referrer front campaign. They posted that to GitHub. Tim Ferriss had written a piece about it. So we just repurposed that as a pre-launch campaign just to get some data. And we kind of used that plus the research we'd done on the space. And, you know, went and raised with that. And it was, I mean, it's just different. It was, you know, April, May 2016, yeah. a couple months before Dollar Shave Club sold, a couple months after Harry's raised at like a $700 million post two yeah. or three years in, Casper was going crazy. Um, and, you know, and so it was, it was just, it, it, it was yeah, a good Just time. a different era. Yeah. Feel, totally, it's crazy yeah. how it feels people like, People you know, went outside. It, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> So you're doing that Harry's pre-launch campaign. How many email addresses do you get from that campaign? Like, I remember Harry's was like, look, we don't want to launch to crickets. Nobody wants to. How many email yeah, addresses do you get? Yeah, we got like 2,000 email addresses, I think. I th okay. I think we got And then like you two, went and raised on that data. You're like, hey, we're starting this business. We have these 2,000 email addresses. We think that's enough to go start a business. Somebody give us money. Yeah, I mean, we kind of soft-shooted a little bit more than that. We started reaching out to people and saying like, oh, I don't know, you know, is this something that we could um, raise for or not? And, you know, we kind of approached friendly investors that way. 
And yeah. at first it's like, oh, you know, should we, oh, should we apply to accelerators? Okay, we, you know, we sort of applied to accelerators at the same time that we were contemplating a raise. And then people started getting um, excited about a potential round. And it was like, then it was like, oh, should we raise 500? Should we raise a million? You know, it kind of snowballed from there, which is like what happens when folks are excited. Yeah. You guys never went through an accelerator. You guys sort of nope. just did this on your own. How much did you raise before you sort of really launched the business and got a dollar in revenue? So we raised like three and a half million in May 2016. And then we raised like another 3.7 in October and then launched in November. Okay. So you raised about $7 million before the business launches. Mm -hmm. And was that like the most dilutive part of the raise? Because at that point, you don't have any revenue. You've raised two yeah. rounds. The conversation we had with the investors was kind of meet us in the middle and we'll take a bit more dilution than we're looking for. And, you know, and, and you'll put in a bit more than you were looking for, um, you, yeah. know, it, you know, at a bit higher price. They were reasonable terms, I think. But, you know, sure, yeah. it was, you know, a lot of capital. Yeah, I think it gave us a lot of, you know, I know you built Native very differently, you know, since we were kind of going to go the traditional uh, venture route on financing path. I think it's, we sort of caught up a bit in that it gave us a lot of leverage going into our A then because we could honestly say that we had, you know, another 12 months of runway still spending pretty hard. Yeah, definitely. Tell me what you did with a $7 million launch. So you've obviously got to get a manufacturer. You're not making these yeah. things like out of your own house. When we did our next round, we still had most of it left. It, it was more... Um, you know, if you need money, if you need money, you're in a weak, you're in a weak position of approaching sure. people. You want to be able to have the conversation and say, like, yeah. sure, if you want to put in now, great. And, you know, if um, and if not, we're we're good to go. Yeah. So we've always been, you know, kind of mindful of that. Yeah. Never more true than today. Yes, for sure. And how do you line up a manufacturer? Because I imagine like, um, you know, with deodorants, there's two big deodorant manufacturers, like two big yeah. deodorant companies in the uh, United States. One's Unilever and the other's P&G. There's a lot of yeah. manufacturing facilities that can make deodorant. You know, for something like contacts, uh, how the hell, like you can't call up J&J &J and be like, hey, I want to make a new uh, company or like I'm going to create a new contact company and destroy AccuView. Sell me your contacts. They're going to be like, go get the fuck out of here. So how do you yeah. go about finding a manufacturer for this? Yeah, since it's a medical device category, the FDA had a database of everybody with their approval, and we sort of just worked through it systematically. Um, that gave us a really good market landscape as well in terms of which manufacturers had what capabilities and what distribution where, you know, and what capacity. So, you know, both lined up potential options on the, on the supplier side and also just gave us a sense of what suppliers were out there. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that you use like the FDA uh, like report to be like, these are the possible guys who are going to make this stuff. Yeah. You, yeah. You know, and then it's just sort of a, you know, down the phone call. Yeah. yeah. So you find some guys in Taiwan to initially manufacture. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Are they yep. still doing the manufacturing for Hubble contacts? Yep. So we also do reselling for the large manufacturers. Yeah. But for, on the Hubble brand, there are guys. Yeah. And, you know, I read somewhere that you guys get an exclusivity where you're like, hey, look, you're going to sell daily disposable contacts in the United States only through Hubble. Is that right? I said, I read somewhere that you uh, got an exclusivity with these guys in Taiwan on, where they agreed to sell only daily disposable to U.S. on e-commerce. Okay, gotcha. On e-commerce. So the thing that was nice about them, yeah, was they had they had 20 years before us of, his, of history of distribution in the U.S., um, you know, through independent optometrists. They just they hadn't had then through optometrists. They hadn't had a big e-commerce presence. So that was still up for grabs. Gotcha. And does that cost money to get that exclusivity or are they like, we'll do it because you look like you're going to, uh, you know, build a big business around this? Like, was it right out of yeah. the gate that you got the exclusivity? The, the, the way we pitched it to them was we had minimums we had to hit on volume over time. Gotcha. And we said like, look, you know, you guys have had your U.S. business for a long time. You've never penetrated deep into e-commerce. So, like, do you really have plans to over the next X months? Yeah. Um, you know, if we build an additional distribution arm for you, great. And if not, you, you know, you can have it back. Sure. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and obviously, you did build a pretty yeah. uh, considerably sized distribution arm. So you've got that $7 million. You know, you've burned some of it, certainly building the site and getting mm -hmm. products and doing all the branding. You launch in November. This is pre days of like ClearBank, right? So like, yeah. you're not, you're like you have to raise equity to basically actually fund your ads. You got it. Like, how do you start advertising the business? Facebook and Facebook. Instagram. I, yeah, I mean, gotcha. I know you're sympathetic here. I think all of this is just built on Facebook and Instagram. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You had 70 years of businesses built on TV before this. Like one big chunky channel is, you know, is where things happen. What is your marketing budget early on and what is the growth look like? You know, are you spending $10,000 a month on Facebook ads or have you raised $7 million and you're like, we're going to mattresses day one, we're putting down $10,000 and we're going to get some revenue here. 
somewhere in between, I'd say. I mean, we've always, you know, sort of tried to, we might have gotten a little headier at different points in time, but generally try to manage against a reasonable CAC. Yeah. You know, and, and so that that's always been what's constrained, you know, constrained us. What was the payback period that you were going to be comfortable with? You know, what's crazy is like, I've talked to the... Uh, yeah. Acquirers, like when we were trying to sell our business, we talked to a bunch of acquirers and there was a well-known direct-to-consumer business that was looking at a five-year payback period where they're like, you know, we sell you the product today, we'll get our money yeah. back in 2025, which means we need yeah. five years of finance. Like, where, where are you comfortable with? In theory, under 12 months, you know, it's, it's always the like push and pull down, <laughs> yeah. you know, with, 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 <laughs> You know, yeah, and I think also it's easier because there was enough access to equity that we were able to get the business to a big enough scale that we could be cash flow positive at you know at those sort of payback levels. I think you know folks starting businesses today, you sort of have to grow into that because there's the financing's tighter, and so you know I hear a lot of people who are sort of three month payback at the start or six month payback at the start. Scaling that way brings enough cash into the business that they have the working capital they need. They have, they can build up the relationships with ClearBank or whatever. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I read was you said that 40 million people in the United States wear contacts. Yeah. And at some point you were reaching about three, like you had three million impressions on Facebook on a daily basis. Yeah. yeah. So in 13 days, you've exhausted, like everyone who like wears uh, contacts in the United States has seen your ad. In 26 days, everyone's seen two ads. You know, in 50 days, everyone's had uh, their impressions rate is up to four. Their frequency is up to four. It's interesting. I'm sure you've had this experience, too, where it's like based on like who the ads are hitting. You hear from people either people think you're like ubiquitous and just hitting them all the time or they've never heard of you at all. And for our category, it's not exclusively, but it's primarily, you know, women 25 to 45. And so, like, you talk to folks in that demo and they're like, well, crap, you know, I, I see your ads all the time. And then you talk to folks outside of it and, yeah, you know. Yeah, you're right. Uh, there's a, a ton of people who talk about native and they're like, I've never like that are like, you guys retarget me all the time. Am I the only customer you have? Yeah. There are other people who are like, I've never heard of this brand. I've never seen an advertisement for this brand. Even one of our investors was like, I've never seen an ad for this brand. And I was like, you have. You probably just don't realize it at this point. I talk about this with other brands all the time, which is like, then there's the advertising you do just for VCs where you do, you know, you buy the out of home stuff that they see on their commute to work. They're not engaging with Instagram ads or they're not in your targeting segment. Sure. And then the ads that have a, have a meaningfully lower ROI, uh, they get super excited about because they're like, well, I saw that one. Uh, yeah. So you must be a big brand. Yeah. We, we never did that with VCs, but we did do that once we were in brick and mortar stores where we're like, yeah. let's put up a bunch of billboards in an area where the buyer is going to see this. So they're going to be like, oh, wow, they're advertising native in Minneapolis and they're saying drive everyone to Target. This is great. I love this brand. Yeah, exactly. That's the biggest place where the ROI stuff gets a return is like if you have a specific yeah. community of small people with big checkbooks that, you know, that you're trying to impress. Doesn't that make like, it makes zero sense that that happens. Like you're like, this is such an efficient market, right? Everyone talks yeah. to everybody. There's so much capital in this business and still like trying to make people happy or play to their whims gets them super excited yeah. about it. I read like, you know, Instacart applied to Y Combinator and they were late to their application and they like muscled their way into getting an interview and they got rejected from Y Combinator. And so the Instacart guy sent a six pack of beer to the guy who had done his interview. Yeah, and said, "Hey, uh, understood that we can't get in. Hope you enjoy this beer. Thanks for taking the time to do this." And the guy's like, "This is fucking awesome. I'm gonna let Instacart into Y Combinator now." Like that, <laughs> like little. He knows exactly what the business is, but when he gets a six pack of beer, he changes his mind and but, is like, "Yeah, Instacart's great." But you see it. I mean, you see this all the time, and it's tough because, like, you know, it can persist all the way through IPO, and so like it's hard to say the investors are making the wrong decision. But like where investors just seem to over, I think, have a tendency to overweight and overvalue like goods and services that they would consume themselves. So you think about something like Peloton. Yeah. Peloton's a crazy expensive bike. It's really nice. Yeah. But, you know, you look at you talk about, you know, long payback windows. You look at their payback model. And even if you accept their I think they claim one percent monthly churn or something, even if you accept that, you're still looking, I think, at like four year payback on that. But it's a really nice bike and it's the type of product that investors use. Sure. Yeah. And not only that, they like lock you into a six month subscription right when you purchase, which yeah. is why like their first year churn is so low because they're like every month oh, for the first six months, we lock you in. And so you can't go anywhere. We've already charged you for it. So you can't churn away from this. So they're and they're counting that as zero churn. And so then it, I'm then sure. Then yeah, you I'm sure. They're like, when they're pitching to VCs and like uh, on their S1 and their 10Ks, what do you think they're doing? They're like saying, hey, this is how the <laughs> metrics look, right? That's smart. I mean, then, yeah, the, that then the turn clock starts at month seven. 
When we were trying to raise money, actually, yeah. there was this one investment advisor that we had. I mean, he was just like helping us out yeah. as a friend. And he's like, look, if people buy two units of deodorant, you might be able to say they're repeat customers. And I'm like, they only had one transaction and I should be call them repeat customers. And he's like, people have done that in the past. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. You're spending money on Facebook and Instagram early on. 40 million people mm -hmm. were in contacts. You're blanketing the world with uh, Hubble mm -hmm. contacts. Today, it's very different, though. Like, I've seen you on TV. I've seen you and Ben both on TV. I met Ben, and he told me that you were standing on a chair for the TV ad that you guys shot. I was. I'm not he's like sure. Six, I'm seven. like six. Yeah, I'm like six yeah. one. He's just a fucking no, no, giant. Yeah. Yeah. He's a giant. <laughs> so I've seen you guys on TV. I've seen you guys on Reddit. I've seen you guys on podcasts. Is the bulk of your spend still going to Facebook? And what are the other channels that you found working for yeah, you? Yeah, if anything, we kind of got like more diverse for a while. And then we got less diverse again. And, you know, and I think the thinking there was it was like Facebook dependence is scary for everyone. It was valuable to us to demonstrate that we could acquire customers in other channels. But yeah. then like we did that for a while and we said, OK, we can do it. Like the CACs are higher. Do we have to prove this to ourselves every day? <laughs> or having gone through that, you know, exercise, which is probably like a year, you know, year, 12, 18 months or so. Can we just allocate the budget where it'd be most efficient today and worry about if that changes now that we know where else we could put the money, we can worry about it later. Sure. Did you find that when you were putting the money elsewhere, you saw lower Facebook caps? Like, you know, a lot of companies that I've spoken oh. with are like, when we're on TV, we see Facebook prices drop. I call bullshit. You I, did, I, it didn't work. That didn't happen for you. I remember there was, I won't say who, there There was one ad buyer who was complaining when we turned TV down and said, hey, where's my halo? And then we told them that, you know, we turned it back on and we hadn't, and the halo was magically there again. I... <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like the emperor is wearing no clothes, huh? You're yeah. just like, okay, we're on TV ads and he's like, great, I'm seeing cheaper prices now. Yeah. That's great. Oh, my God. Was television your number two channel of spend after Facebook ads when you were sort of diversifying channels? Yeah, I'd say it's and it's still probably number three. It's just the gap between one and two is opened up and two yeah. and three flip between TV and search probably. Gotcha. You know, a native, I think I've been honest with this before with you, like, you know, we relied heavily on Facebook ads and Pinterest yeah. ads. There were a couple months where Pinterest ads like outspent Facebook ads, but it's generally Facebook. And we never found anything nearly as efficient. And it's hard because you're like, look, I want to diversify channels. So if Facebook starts sucking, I still can rely on television and podcasts yeah. and search. But at the same time, like your greatest weakness is also your greatest strength. It, we're really exactly. good at Facebook ads. And this is generating a ton of cash. Why try and uh, fuck that up right now? Why not like deal with tomorrow's problems tomorrow? Exactly. And I think the problem is um, in a world before Facebook, you didn't just have all these new brands all the time. And so like yeah. Facebook's what done brought us all to the party. Uh, yeah, that's like, right. You take a step back, like the problem we're all solving is like you had this new activity, Facebook or whatever, you know, paid so, you know, social media where people were spending a bunch of their days. They wanted it as an ad supported service. They didn't want it as a subscription service. And so you needed a new group of advertisers that were going to maximize the potential of the platform so that people could get their Facebook account for free. And that's like, I feel like actually the biggest, <laughs> like the function that like us advertisers serve broadly, just the same way that like Procter & Gamble 70 years ago figured out the potential of Tide for TV. Sure, sure. Uh, P&G actually invented the soap opera. It's why exactly. it's called the soap opera. They're like, oh, we're going to develop content and then so we can run ads between the content. It's fucking yeah. amazing. Yeah, I always joke with our head of creative that one day he'll get a retrospective of all the ads we were running in whatever the stretch of time. Yeah. You know, you said Facebook is the one who's brought us all to the party. That's so true. Yeah. I think, like, everyone's fear, though, is that when the party ends, Facebook's only going to go home with one of us, even though it brought all of us to the party. And so we're trying to figure out some other girl to, like, uh, hitch our ride to. But it's just, like, you can't always get what you want. Like, I yeah, like that, yeah, too. Yeah. It's, it's not... <laughs> I'd love to have 10 equally strong marketing channels with great ROIs that were each 10% of my budget. Yeah. Yeah, sure. of course. When you were like day to day at yeah. Apple, one of the things that you guys realized was, well, you've got to get a verifications for every prescription yeah. that comes through the mm -hmm. door because like it's an FDA regulated product. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is the case in every other country. Like I think in Europe, I can just go to like a pharmacy mm -hmm. and buy contacts and I don't yeah, need to show my prescription. Just varies market to market. Yeah. Who's buying a prescription contacts that are the wrong prescription and it's like buying them in, in bulk and like being happy? Like are people doing nefarious things with contacts or is this just uh, a... <laughs> 
like a historical thing that, you know, the FDA has always required. I think it's legacy to the industry here. Um, you know, 1-800-CONTACTS, which is a great, you know, great business was sort of early to the e-commerce space. And there was sort of a lot of negotiation, you know, yeah. back and forth between them and the Optometry Association and Congress um, to kind of settle on a solution that worked for everybody in terms of how prescriptions would be treated in the space. And I think part of it is because, like a lot of these things, it was preferable to have something federal as opposed to state by state because sure. it, was, yeah. it was just getting to become a you know nightmare for everyone. Yeah. And so can you tell me how you guys went about verifying those prescriptions? I mean, I know about it. It was really unique. It was incredible and unique. And um, I know we've copied some of the strategies that you have at Native, not from a prescription standpoint, but from yeah. another standpoint. But can you tell it, everyone? Like, yeah, I mean, that? anything high volume like that, it's, you know, it's, it's a customer service problem and, you know, and it's hard to keep up. So we built an outsourced team and we have an internal group that's in charge of sort of, you know, quality control on the work of those folks. And then we have multiple audit layers. But we move sort of paper tickets so that um, at paper ticket and then different quality metrics associated around that just across sort of all of our customer service, you know, because it was just very scalable. It was flexible for the agents. It allowed them to work from home, you know, which opened up folks who would have trouble commuting, you know, and got, and got you sort of a higher quality pool of folks. You know, I think the first to do this was actually JetBlue and continues to do this to this day. It's just the most scalable way to do customer service and gets you out of a lot of the overhead of a call center. Paper ticket is yeah. something that no, like, I don't know any other e-commerce business really doing that. But what you're saying is that a ticket would come in to like verify a prescription and you're off to an email or, a, you know, whatever it is, sort of anywhere up and down the, yeah. Yeah. Where's my package? It comes yeah, into your in yeah. inbox. And a team of off sort like a team of agents sort of are raised to answer that ticket as quickly as possible yeah. and get paid once they answer and presumably meet a certain quality score. Exactly. One, how much do you pay per ticket? Can you talk about that? It, it varies sort of task to task and how difficult yeah. you know, how difficult it is to complete. And there's different agents with different um like tiers of tickets that they'll exactly. Handle. Yep. Is like the average fifty cents, is the average dollar fifty, or is the average like seven cents? Like if you had to ballpark it, where, like what order of magnitude is it there? Not seven cents and not $5 on that, you know, for an hour. Gotcha. Okay. And then how many agents are sort of racing to answer these tickets? You know, it's a large operation, um, probably a hundred, you know, or hundred gotcha. or so order. Yeah. I, I remember you told me about yeah. this and I was mesmerized by it. You also yeah. like said at one point you had like extra agents. You're like, hey, do you guys want yeah. these? And then phenomenal agents for Native. Nice. I think they still work at Native. And like what happened is we actually shifted from a strategy of using an off-source agency where yeah. we just paid an agency and they hired their own employees. And like, you know, we paid yeah. them four grand per person and they paid each yeah. employee two grand to being like, forget the agency. That's just a bunch of agency costs, of course. Let's hire the person individually and then ask that person to go find their friends who also want to do this. That's how we develop like a reputation system. And I think the big thing is that there's such a scarcity of work from home opportunities for agents. And it's really crazy because it makes no sense. Commuting makes no sense when everything's throwing off um, stuff that you can poke around. Then like, why make people trek into an office every day? It's a bunch of their time. You know, if you're dealing with international agents, it's uh, the commute can be very difficult. Um, so yeah, sure. And the hours yeah. are crazy. Like for us, yeah. what we realized is the agents were so much happier because like the ours were in the Philippines in order to work like U.S. hours. Yeah. You know, it was basically their nights that they had to be up. And like they were much yeah. more willing to do that at home if they had a baby around or something. To that totally. Effect, as opposed to being in an office. Yeah, yeah. You have lots of single mothers doing this who are like. You know, we probably over-index on that, very talented and, you know, and have trouble sort of finding commensurate opportunities that will, you know, work around their parenting schedule. And so it's great. Did you build your own customer service platform in order to handle this? Or are you just on the Zendesk? Zendesk? You're yeah, on Zendesk. Zendesk. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Have you heard of Gorgeous? Yeah. I, yeah. I know a couple other companies who are using Gorgeous who are very happy with them. Yeah. Some nice Shopify integrations that, uh, yeah. that Zendesk doesn't have. We were just sort of three years in, and so our team was pretty, you yeah. know. You're used to Zendesk and it's uh, yeah. massive switching costs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's basically, like, I think of Gorgeous as, like, a Clavio for e-commerce, which is, like, yeah. uh, or CRM, like, built-in and native and specific yeah. for e-commerce and not made for something yeah. else. But you're right. Like, once you're used to something, the switching costs are enormous. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, I, think, I think that's right on both fronts. And um, we actually had, you know, a friend who's, who spun up, who's been sort of, you know, helping other teams, you know, helping other organizations spin up work from home teams as well for them, a group called uh, Resolve CX. So, I mean, and it's, you know, it's exactly your experience. It's worked well for sort of multiple e-commerce companies. It's a good, it's a good setup. 
Yeah, I'm really impressed that you could get it to 100. I think we have it at like a dozen or a couple dozen maybe, or like yeah. Native does. And, yeah. you know, there, like your manager sort of still knows everyone. Like yeah. they have a manager and like it, it, it's yeah. it, like, you know, manageable. But at 100, yeah. do you have like mid-level support there? Like do you have agents and then like managers? Yeah, we have mid-level support. Yeah, we have gotcha. mid-level support. And then we also have a team in the U.S. sort of sitting on top of all, uh, on top yeah. of all. Yeah, yeah. How big is the team in the U.S.? I remember when we just uh, when we chatted, like you were very much like native sides. I remember at one point you're like, we have twelve people running, you know, twenty million. Yeah, we're in like marketing. a little north. We're like a little north of twenty, I want to say, by sort of venture back standards. You know, we continue to keep it um, pretty lean. Although I guess these days, um, sadly, what venture back standards is has you know has trimmed down a bit. Um, yeah, but and so is what lean is, to be honest, as well. But yeah. Like, uh... <laughs> yeah. What are the people's functions in those 20? Because like that's – you're a very large business at this point. You've raised yep. north of $70 million. To be the size of business you are and to have yeah. like 20-some people is extraordinary and not commonplace. How is this happening? Like what are those people doing and what does Everlane have that uh, you, know, you I don't I honestly have, have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. We have a decent-sized finance and supply chain function. Um, yeah a decent sized group that you know, helps manage the customer service operation. A couple folks in creative and marketing, uh, GC, um, me and Ben, um, let's see, separate few folks who work on the reseller business. Are you guys running a paid marketing in-house or have you outsourced that to an agency? Are you running Facebook ads in-house or is that an agency? You know, it's, it's funny how loose it all gets is we're outsourced, but with, with Slack now, you know, Slack now and yeah. ads manager, you all sit in the same stuff all day. Yeah. Yes. You know, it's all outsourced, but you can work very closely with folks. I think there's benefits to keeping a lot of the spend on, on the agency side because there's just shared resources that you can build across multiple companies. So like, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've seen like a lot of businesses sharing landing page templates now sharing. Uh, sure. I think a lot of the front end dev work has moved to the media buyers. That just sort of makes sense for us all to share. And does that like eliminate a competitive advantage? Because like if you have a front end media buyer and by front end media buyer, you're talking yeah. about some guy like you hired some guy to run your Facebook ads. Yeah. He's creating the landing pages as well. He's sort yeah. of running all that stuff. But once you find something that works, that sort of mm -hmm. translates across to 20 different brands right away and prevents like your unique competitive advantage from maybe shining uh, for longer than it would. Yeah, that's one case. On the flip side, we're getting learnings from the other 20. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. If you thought that you were uniquely talented and that you could just crush everyone else, then you'd want to, you know, keep it all to yourself. Yeah. If you think that sort of, you know, surveying the market as much as possible is the best strategy, you just want as much information as you can get and, and working, with, yeah. you know, working with external buyers and working with multiple buyers is, you know, seems like the most efficient way to do that. Yeah. I also think it's tougher now with so many levers on the bidding side seem less important. Everybody can see everyone's creative in the ads library. Yeah. Um, you can click on the ads in the ads library to see what landing pages everyone's using. A any enterprising team that's curious about your work can, can paw through it if they want. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair point. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about where the business is today. You've raised 70-some million dollars. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And who was like the last round? Who sort of led the last round? I can't remember whether First Mark or Wildcat led our last round. Gotcha. And can you talk a little bit about size of business from a top line perspective? Like, yeah, uh, you know, we, we're doing more in top line than we've raised, you know, which is good. And, you know, yeah, been, yeah that is good. <laughs> you know, and we've been break even the last bit, um, which has been nice and taken some stress off and, you know, have decent capital reserves still. So, you know. I never went through this process. Yeah. And um, in part, I didn't go through this process because I'm a coward. But like, how does it feel like you oh, know, when you're like raising money? The process because I'm a coward. I think about Harry's and I think about your business and I think about Dollar Shave Club. And I'm like, look, at some point you realize the music is going to stop unless there's another round of capital here. That's not the case for you guys anymore. You guys are break even or pretty close to that. And so like yeah. that isn't the case. But at some point it probably was, right? You're like, the music is going to stop unless we raise the next round. Yeah. How much of your brain power are you thinking about, like, how do I keep this business afloat as opposed to how do I make a good business? You know, I feel like hopefully we did a decent job of sort of shifting with the broader environment. You can see, we, you know, we raised in 16, 17 and mid 18. Yeah. Kind of after that last round, we started thinking really hard about how we can make the business sustainable. Yeah, I think that broadly lines up with where capital availability is yeah. in, the, in the direct-to-consumer space. You know, we didn't yeah. want to get caught flat-footed when we were out of money. And so were you spending a lot of your time fundraising or were you spending very little time fundraising in 16, 17, first half of the year? Yeah. The thing is, we never let ourselves get to a place where we were really hard up. You know, it was always 
pleasant enough. And it was kind of a never ending process. You know, we didn't generally just have sort of we're in market now, you know, yeah. we get lots of inbound. And so we kind of talked to the folks who were inbound and build out the set of relationships that way. And then, you know, if, yeah. if it was time for more capital, we'd pull the trigger. Gotcha. And are there any strategics that invested like, you know, uh, Unilever Venture? We once spoke to Unilever Ventures yeah. and I think they ghosted us, to be honest. Uh, Colgate Palm- so Colgate Palmolive put some money in 18. Has that been like different in any way? Or, like our strategics offering some unique perspective there or is it um, just like capital is capital? It's been a good relationship. I think both sides were kind of curious to get to know how the other side ticks a little bit. Yeah. You know, and so just like really nice, thoughtful team over there. And, you know, I think good way for us to understand in a way that was kind of nice because it was in our categories, just sort of like broadly, how does a, you know, how does a large consumer health, consumer goods company think? Yeah, slowly. <laughs> you know, and then from their side, how do direct-to-consumer kids think? I yeah. think that that was productive on both sides, or certainly on ours. Of the money you've raised, have you found certain investors to be significantly better in terms of helping you than other investors? Or has it generally been capital as capital, take what you can, take the best terms you can get? It's funny. And, and this probably isn't that unusual because it's like most businesses probably, most businesses that do go venture out probably do raise most of their money when like they're, you know, when they're subs, you know, when their little corner of the world is hot. Yeah. It's been the same folks around the table for a while now. They're part of the business. Um, and we, yeah. you know, we have, you know, we have good working relationships with all of our board members. You're on a team together and it's a multi-year project. Like it's cheesy, but the like, can you get on with each other thing really does become the most important at the end of the day because it's a long trip. <laughs> yeah, certainly. And speaking of long trip, I'd love to understand, like, I think the state of e-commerce today is certainly different than when you started and yeah. when I started. It's completely yeah. moved. What do you think about founders taking secondary? What, what should they think about when they do that? Should they be taking second? And to be clear, secondary sales are just like uh, founders selling their own shares and getting cash in their own pocket as opposed to the company raising money. I think it's healthy for the business. I think letting teams participate in that as well is healthy for the business because I think you don't want your management team terrified. You want them motivated. Um, you know, yeah. you want them, you know, hungry for an outcome. <laughs> yeah. But you don't want them like terrified either i don't think you manage as well through the inevitable kind of downswings then yeah i do think it's kind of healthy and i think it's very good for the team as well because you know to show that you're serious about generating liquidity for team members when you know when it's available you know makes you much more credible as the manager who's really on their side did you use that as like a recruiting tactic where you're like look we find liquidity for our teammates before ipo or exit you know, you don't want to be like too crass about things, but I, yeah. it's certainly something, you know, folks ask about. And it's, you know, and it's also something that I think, you know, potential new employees talked about with current employees yeah. you know, as they were kind of going through the process. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think you're right when it comes to like building a longer term business. Like you mentioned that you started this in 2016. Yeah. It's four years in, you know, at some point founders are going to want liquidity, right? They're not going to work for 75. Like, you know, you gave up lucrative careers doing something else, right? Managing Columbia Investment Fund. I'm sure Bridgewater pays more than $75,000 a year. You gave up lucrative careers. Yeah, and so you want to see some of that return sooner rather than later. Exactly. And you think about like, you know, you, you know, hopefully they pull it back together from here. But you think about something like Lime or Bird. Those were multi-billion dollar paper valuation companies a year ago. Probably a decent chance they got, you know, the folks took money off. But if they didn't, what board member really wants to deal with the management team that's taking, you know, an 80 percent down round with, you know, with nothing to show for an incredible sure, run? Business. It's just sort of yeah. a toxic interaction at some point. Yeah, that's a great point. Let's talk a little yeah. bit more about Hubble. The podcast is called Exit Strategy. Yeah. You're not there on a day-to-day basis today, are you? No, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You are there on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, especially now that day-to-day is from the... Is from the, home, from, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you're there on a day-to-day basis. Tell me what happens. Are you get, Like, what is the goal here? Is it CPG? Is it, hey, Colgate, come in and buy uh, the rest of this? Is it IPO? Or is it, hey, look, we may break even. We can control our own destiny whenever we want. I think it has to be the last of them because I think yeah. otherwise you don't have any... Again, you know, it's like... When we were raising, we always wanted to be raising when we had cash left. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking about sort of larger events for the company, you need an alternative and your alternative has to be building a business that you're comfortable owning a chunk of. You're absolutely right. I think like when Native was sort of thinking about raising money and we ended up getting acquired, I was like, like people still ask me, they're yeah. like, why did you make this? Like, why did you decide to sell? Like we were doing, you know, tens of millions in revenue yeah. a year. I think the last month we sold, we had a million dollars in EBITDA. 
uh, you know, we're going to generate eight figures in EBITDA in the yeah. next 12 months. And I was just like, I have no idea what the fuck is going to happen to Facebook ads. I have no idea what's going to happen to the economy. I have no idea what's like, you know, yeah. God forbid somebody like cuts off their thumb and ends up in a stick of native deodorant. Now, all of a sudden we have a public relations catastrophe. Yeah, on it, our hands. You can love your business and still feel that it's just diversification. I mean, with, yeah. you know. Yeah, other than it's your baby, you know, who would ever sign up for having that much of their net worth concentrated in one asset? And I don't think that's contradictory at all with believing in your business, believing in yourself. um, Yeah, yeah. You know, all the rest. The music stopped so fast. There was like a perfect storm of events. First, like Casper's IPO was like was really hard on the industry. Like yeah. you put, you know, Casper was the dar- you mentioned this earlier. Like Casper was the darling of the DTC industry. First business you'd ever heard of that did a million dollars in thirty days when they launched their yep. business. Everyone was like, "Holy shit, these are the guys!" Started in twenty thirteen, early on, beautiful brand. You know, New York City subway Great ads team, where you're just like, that, yeah. "Yeah, exactly." You're just like, "These guys have figured it out." Raised $400 million, IPO at less than $400 million. At one point, a couple of weeks ago, they were worth $100 million. Yeah. You know, Outdoor Voices has to recapitalize, which is really tough on that team, I imagine. Then there was like the WeWork fiasco of like people actually caring about bottom line, uh, I think. And then COVID hit. Like there were multiple events that destroyed this uh, industry. What's going to be so interesting about all this is you have... On the one hand, you'd say like, okay, venture winter again. It's funny. It's like we feel it most acutely in direct to consumer because, you know, we're e-commerce guys. But it's like then you talk to your friends in like in other spaces and it's like my friends with like AI or machine learning startups are like, could this get more bloated? You know, certainly all the, you know, all the mobility stuff is very visible in the delivery stuff. And so it just feels like, okay. And you so you could say like, okay, does all this, the startups just go away for a bit? But like the flip side of that is a trillion dollars in dry powder raised last year. A lot of that's going to go to, you know, people supporting their existing portfolio companies and hoping for something to happen. But that's still like a few hundred billion dollars that has to go somewhere. And presumably the VCs aren't just going to return it to their LPs. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I remember when I was, you know, when I was at uh, on the investment team for Columbia's endowment, Columbia was, which was really interesting, really meticulous about sort of logging all their historical performance. And so you could look, A, you could look at sort of what their venture funds had done through 07 to 09. And of course, they'd been marked up 6% because nobody takes a down round ever unless they can avoid it. And Facebook was raising still. So you had one whale um, generating lots of up rounds at huge, yeah. you know, and sort of swarming everything else. But the other thing that was interesting, more on the PE side, because, you know, venture wasn't uh, having such a crazy moment in, during that period, was you had these giant bloated funds coming into the crisis. You had KKR, or Apollo, all these groups raising 10, 15 billion dollar funds, the worst performing funds in history. But then the ones that closed in 08 were some sure. of the best big funds in history. And so it took a while for those GPs to make it back to market because their 0506 funds were disasters and they had to get their 08 fund mature enough that people would forget that. But like the ones who got some capital closed before the crisis had great new portfolios to talk about in 11 and 12. And what did you see? It happened on a four or five year cycle instead of a two or three year cycle. But everybody came back with bigger funds than, yeah. their, you know, than their last pre-crisis fund. You're the only person I've heard of who's talked about this from like a bottoms up perspective instead of a top down perspective. You're not like, fuck, uh, you know, all of these businesses are fucked. You know, there's no end in sight to this. Like, we're going to be at home for a long time. Uh, like, what's going to happen to, like, the berries and rumble fitnesses yeah. of the world? What's going to happen to the weight travels of the world? What's going to happen to all birds of the world when people don't need, sh- like, they're not going outside to try and, like, you know, go on dates yeah. or go to the clubs or anything to that effect? But you're not talking about that. You're like, hey, look, these VCs have to deploy capital. That's their job. Uh, yeah. And they've got a bunch of dry powder. Yeah, their job is to be top decile in deploying the capital they have. That's their job. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not market timers. Um, if you know, if the pension funds and endowments, um, you know, and other institutions want market time, wanted somebody to try to time the market, they give it to a macro fund. That's their job. If you think about the heroes of the direct consumer space, yeah. it's got to be like a Casper away, you know, Rothies and all. Yes. Probably like those are the four that sort of stand out. Maybe hims and hers at this point yeah. as well. You know, Away is going to suffer a lot. I imagine Allbirds and Rothies can't like love this t- type of yeah. market environment. Certainly in the way that like Brooklinen is probably like, you're probably spending a lot more time at home thinking about your bed. If you're like Mycin and selling cookware, you're probably yeah. thinking a lot more about the cookware you're using. 
do those companies take down rounds? Or do you think they have enough? You know, what's crazy is I feel like um, the U.S. government has told everyone, hey, you better have six months of runway at home to continue operating. Hey, Delta yeah. Airlines, you better have three days of runway. If you don't, if you don't have revenue for three days, don't worry, we got you. Yeah. Uh, where, what should be happening with these companies? Like if you're running Hubble, how much runway should you expect to have before you're like, fuck uh, something like, you know, like it's a different environment. You know, three years ago, you never thought about this. Today, you're probably like, I should be thinking about runway for a really long time. I feel like if any, you know, D to C cooled off a little bit before everything else or started to. Yeah. And so like we've been thinking about runway for a while, whether we like manage well through that, like we think our runway has to be indefinite. I think what'll be interesting about all this is it just it feels like there's, you know, this is sort of like the Mark Andreessen piece that everyone's reading this week. There's been a really long stretch where like, it feels like everybody's been told kind of just stay in place. It depends how long this goes and it depends how unhappy or not people are spending more of their day at home. But this feels like the first chance window in a long time to maybe actually reorganize some chunks of the economy a bit in a way that's more interesting where, um, you know, the 2020s feel more different from the 2010s than maybe the 2010s did from the 2000s or the 90s. But, you know, we'll see. You know, reorganization of the economy has probably been necessary for a long time, right? Like the idea that it takes four years to get a political science degree and four years to get an organic, organic chemistry degree cannot make sense, yeah. right? Like how is it possible that it takes the same amount of time to get through college for both of those? But like right now, are people like living hand to mouth? Are there people thinking about that? Are you sitting at home thinking about, okay, at Hubble, this is what we should do in order to like move forward in the next decade? You live your business day to day. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But like, yeah, you know, but that leaves plenty of time for internal bloviating um, as well. So at Native, I lived it so day to day. I'd often try and time sales at the end of a month so that like you could get a little bit of revenue at the end of one <laughs> month and the, a little bit of revenue at the beginning of the next month. Yeah. So like, you know, if it's April, I'd have launch a sale April 29th. So like yeah. there, there would be a ton of uh, juice there and a ton of juice May 3rd when the sale ended. And that's how I was living it. I was like living it, you know, a week to week where I was like, hey, how do we manage expectations and create a great up into the right trajectory? Yeah. I think that, like, yeah, Mark Andreessen has a great point and, like, you know, great, let's inf invest in infrastructure and change the way we behave. But in, the reality is that, like, Delta Airlines is burning hundreds of millions of dollars a year right now, probably billions of dollars a yeah. year. These guys need bailouts. Away travel should get a bailout. I'm not sure why away travel wouldn't get a bailout, but Ruth's Chris would. That certainly makes sense to me, which is the reason why you wouldn't give away a bailout is you would say, OK, maybe people's travel behavior is just going to be different on the other side of this and, and this business shouldn't exist and we shouldn't be making that bet. But certainly by saving Delta, you are making that bet. So it's weird that you'd be sending everyone to the airport without a suitcase. Yeah, this is the trouble when the U.S. government yeah. decides who lives and who dies. I think about when Obama, like when like we passed the Affordable Care Act and people were like, oh, we're going to have death panels. Yeah. The reality is today we have death panels. Those death panels sit on the U.S. Department of Treasury and they decide what businesses live and die. Across the spectrum, there's this high, high preference for cash moving through the business to the individual instead of just from the government to the individual through this. And it seems weird because, I mean, you know, I, I think this... It, certainly, I know everyone in the venture in the venture back space has been thinking about this. Do we apply for the loans? Do we not apply for the loans? And the loans are really weird when you think about it. It's sort of just an unemployment program administered as a pass through through these businesses, which is why if you're a bank, like, do you really want to take liability for that? If you're a business, do you want to take sure. liability for that? Um, you want people taken care of. But if it's ultimately just money going from the government to payroll, which is just people, why have these two layers in between at all of it's got to go from the government to a bank, it's got to go from the bank to, uh, to a business, to, and to then a from business, business to a person. Go, yeah. And it's so much easier if it just goes from the government to the person in terms of monitoring like what the new consumer preference set might be on the other side of this. Great. Give people, you know, keep people in cash so they can let you know what they want you to build. That's because there is no way it goes from the business or from like the bank to the business and the business to the person without any costs. It's not yeah. like the U.S. government gives a, a dollar to the bank and the bank gives a dollar to a business and the business gives a dollar to a right. person. Right. And, and the bank and the business are going to take money from that. Totally. As management and I assume on the bank side, too, you're signing all these things saying that, you know, you personally represent that this is all above board and, legit, you know, and your business is actually distressed and you're legitimately meeting payroll. Why? If the person's not needed at that point in time, and it's just sort of a government and, you know, a necessary cash transfer program with you as this weird signatory with extra liabilities around that. It's very odd. And I think it's why there's, you know, been meaningful pushback. 
Yeah, I think there's been pushback. I'm just not sure how meaningful it's been yet. And I yeah. guess like no one knows. This is exactly what happened during the financial crisis as well. And this would happen like during the Civil War where yeah. the U.S. government was like, we have money, we have money, we have money. And everyone's like, give me some. And afterwards, yeah. we're like, what the fuck did all the money go? Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. I mean, it, you know, it feels like we couldn't be more incompetent, you know, handling this day to day. And it's in some ways it's reassuring to look across to Europe where you have some countries, you know, you just have more countries. And so you have a larger and greater range of outcomes. And it's like, okay, like we're a big companies, I mean, a big country. So we should sit somewhere in the middle of that distribution. And if you were to like, look at how different countries in Europe are handling this, you would say, okay, dimension by dimension, we're not the worst. We're not the best. We sort of just look like a mediocre or, you know, Kind yes. Of, yeah. 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 It's not like we're crazy innovative and we're like, we've solved the issue to make yeah. like, you know, the world just in the United States yeah. and like capitalism to exist. Yeah. Yeah. We're just like, like we're well, handing out money and we hope that like there's not a recession, especially because it's an election year. No, no, we're not testing enough, but nobody is. And we're testing more than some and less than others. You know, all these. Yeah. Yeah, that's we're right. Kind of middle of the pack. It's so hard to even get it like uh, to get an understanding of that as well. You know what I'm shocked by is the New York Times every day. Like when I log into NYT.com, they don't start with 40,000 Americans are dead. You know, this is like the equivalent of not, uh, like 10 9-11s, more than 10. At yeah. this point, it's probably like 13. And every few days, it's another 9-11. How are we not leading yeah. with that every day? We're like 40,000 Americans are dead. It absolutely is strong, uh, like a crazy amount. And it's not the cover of the New York Times every day. It should be like this. I'm not saying it's like fun. I don't want to read that. But I want to like understand the severity of the crisis. And I think by talking yeah. about grocery stores and Netflix, we're like, yeah, maybe we should be able to go outside. Yeah. You should have data-driven reporting around this because it's, I mean, this, you know, this is a pure modeling exercise. I mean, there's probably, I would imagine marginal revolution traffic's probably at an all-time high because an econ blog where everybody's just going back and forth on epidemiology models is, you know. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing for Andrew Yang. Like, it's crazy yeah. that you're working for him. I feel like Andrew Yang went from being a nobody, uh, maybe he wasn't a nobody two years ago, and I just hadn't heard of him, to the Yang gang, to all of a sudden, universal basic income went from, are you crazy, to, hey, when should we start that in 2020? Because it sounds like a great idea. Yeah, he and his team, have just they've been doing some fundraising for direct cash transfers through this. Um, you know, a lot of that through sort of their established network. And, you know, we offered to kind of do some testing and see if we could kind of expand the reach of that, which has been, you know, a fun experiment and a fun project. And, you know, it's, got, it's gone well so far. And so you're helping him fundraise through advertising. Is that right? Mm -hmm. How yeah. different are those ads versus the e-commerce ads? Like certainly are there skills that you can translate over? Certainly like understanding ad manager. Yeah. I mean, this, like, is, hey. this is something I've been curious about. Dan Rosen, our head of creative at Hubble, we did a thing with the ad council last year on, on voting is how much of these things are just about having deep funnels. Um, yeah. You know, I think where a lot of political advertising stumbles is shallow funnels, much higher than other advertiser buckets, I think, run as display ads. The thing is just like, what objectives can you tie stuff to? Just like we would when we're advertising for our business. Yeah. It's been the buying team around Trump really does a good job of that. You see, you know, if you go through his ads, you see a lot of quizzes, surveys, forms, donate, you know, lots of yeah. things that are engaging where they're actually monitoring intent of traffic. Yeah, it's not just a Democrats thing. It's an establishment thing on both sides has been weaker. But since the Trump team is sort of picking up the slack there on the Republican side, they're particularly acute deficit on the Democrat side. Interesting that the Trump team is good at that type of engagement to determine intent. And interesting that political organizations are still spending a lot of money or more disproportionate amount of money on display ads. It's a lot more work. It's a lot more harder. It's heartache. It's a lot more time to like to be tracking performance on your ads. Yeah. You know, and so I think the, the you know, a lot of the time the, the fundraising apparatus is still sort of the tail wagging the dog there. You're spending so much time on, you know, on your fundraising um, that when it then flips around to spend the money, um, you want to spend it fairly efficiently from an operational perspective. And that does not performance marketing make. Um, yeah. Could Hubble have been built in 2020 instead of 2016? Like, would you have done like the same things? Could have been built in the same way. I told PNG, I was like, in 2016, if I had a million dollars, I could have made anybody president of the United States. Yeah. I, I could have done it on Facebook ads alone with a million dollars. Yeah, I think it'd be hard to do today because I think the big shift is you have Clearbank stepping in and financing your ad budget to some degree, but nobody wants to finance working capital. You know, you have assembled brands which have stepped up a bit and they'll do some percentage of your inventory. But like, by and large, if you're a subscription business, it's building up enough 
cash going through the business so that you can afford to have cohorts with, you know, more reasonable payback windows. Um, and yeah. you don't kind of get pinched at like at the suboptimal super fast payback point. And then if you're a single order business, it's having enough product variety to get conversion to where it needs to be. And I think, I mean, you did an amazing job at Native with, you know, with pretty cap, very capital light. But I think in general, you know, a lot of categories, the amount of inventory that you need to build up is, you know, not yeah. tens of billions it's, of dollars, but single digit millions of dollars. And financing yeah. that is really hard because nobody, uh, lots of people will step forward to finance more inventory buys on what you've already bought or to finance marketing spend on the existing products. Nobody wants to step up to finance product extension and product extension is what juices conversion rate and improves the and marketing we, yeah, funnel sure. to allow the whole yeah. thing to work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Like when we were running the business independently, we had just-in-time inventory, so we were yeah. incredibly capital efficient. Today, we have to sit on $12, $15 million in inventory in order to be able to like, you know, service the needs of the Targets and Walmarts and CVSs of the world. And like all of a sudden, your balance sheet, which you know had $1.500,000 on it, has tens of millions of dollars on it or north of $10 million just in inventory because you got yeah, to be it just, able to it's, it. It's just hard to figure. I think it's yeah, hard it's to figure out point. how to build up your balance sheet to where it needs to be, cover even sort of a light level of GNA. And so I, yeah. I do think it's tougher today. I mean, and I think the teams who I know that are doing it well are like really, really lean as a result, yeah. you know, which is great, but it's a lot to ask of a, you know, of a founder, which is build your business slower because the ramp time's longer. It's counterintuitive. It's not impossible. It's just a hard road to hope. Yeah. Okay. Last question. What is the DTC company that you admire the most today? What is the DTC? I think the folks over at Pombus have done a really great job. You know, who, yeah. you know, who would have ever thought that's just a classic example to me of understanding your customer well, increasing assortment, using increased assortment to increase basket size, you know, and scaling a business far further than I think most people would have thought it would go. Yeah. That's a great business to reference. And yeah, like I've seen their TV, like great brand as well, like looks beautiful. I don't think they've raised a ton of money. Like they've just done a fantastic job of it. Yeah. Awesome. Jesse, thanks so much for doing this. This has been fantastic. Jesse Horowitz is the co-founder of Hubble Contacts. He's a published author with a book called Selling Naked, which is fantastic. I've re- uh, I think he sent me an early copy, actually. I read it. It was great. If you're wondering how to start a direct-to-consumer business, it's a great place to be like, who are the people that have done this? What do I have to worry about? And you know, also working for the Yang Gang. So, Jesse, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate thanks, this. Great to chat. Stay safe during the COVID crisis. Thank you. Hey guys, that's a wrap for this episode of the Exit Strategy Podcast. We'll be back next Thursday with another new episode. And if you like this podcast, visit thehustle.co to subscribe to The Hustle, a daily email that will give you the business news you need to start your day.